кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. The battle for the Donbass rages in Ukraine's east, with Russian forces on the verge of capturing the strategically vital city of Severodonetsk. With Ukrainian cities facing a merciless onslaught of Russian artillery and missile attacks, Kyiv calls on the west to send more long-range weapons to push back the Russian offensive. Russia's war of choice and aggression against Ukraine is nearly four months old. How does the situation look on the ground, and where is the conflict likely headed? Stick around, because I've got just the guest to unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, where he's hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Collie, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's great to see you again, and happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to have you. Michael, I know you've been busy as hell since February 24th. In fact, the last time you appeared on this program was February 17th, exactly one week before the war you predicted was imminent on that program actually began. And in the months since, I think it's fair to say that Ukraine's overperformed and Russia has underperformed, with Moscow abandoning its initial goal of, of regime change and focusing its efforts in the east and the south. But in recent weeks, the conventional wisdom has been that the war has turned in Russia's favor with their forces poised to capture all of Luhansk Oblast. Michael, to get us started, how do you see things on the ground at the moment and where do you see them going? My sense of it is that, you know, the second phase of the war has dragged on now and it's been a pretty dynamic phase of territorial control changing here and there on the margins. You have a focused Russian attack in the Donbass, where Russia enjoys an advantage in the local military balance, specifically an advantage in firepower. Russia has a tremendous amount of artillery. It's uh, using air power much more consistently. And the Ukrainian military has a shortage of ammunition. Both forces have attritioned a lot of their best units. The casualties on both sides, Brian, I think are quite high, uh, based on estimates I've seen, although they range quite a bit. Russia took very heavy casualties in the first part of the wars. You know, the first several weeks were really an attempt at regime change. They didn't plan or organize much for a proper conflict. They took tremendous casualties, both in terms of personnel and material, the equipment they lost. In the second phase of the war, they're fighting with a much diminished force, right? They are forced to rely on mobilized units from uh, the occupied territories in Donetsk and Lugansk and the law of auxiliaries. That said, they are slowly grinding away at Ukrainian forces. They focused uh, this operation now on Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. This is the eastern part of the Donbass. And there they are trying to both capture Severodonetsk, but more broadly encircle Ukrainian units. You know, weeks ago they had a breakout from Papasna by Bakhmut. I think Ukrainian forces have established a secondary line around Bakhmut. But they're trying to fight for every inch. And Russian units are also attempting to set up a sort of battle for Slavyansk in the north. They've taken basically all the territory north of the Donetsk River and are hoping to push on Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. 
The picture further south in the Donbass is a bit unclear, but Russian forces spent uh, weeks fighting down there, particularly for around a town called Vidika uh, Novoselka. All right, so if we look at the Ukrainian side of the picture, Ukrainian forces had successful counterattacks around Kharkiv, where there were very few Russian units. They pushed back Russian artillery from the city. That was their goal. They were getting towards the border. Russian forces retained a buffer strip in Ukrainian territory by the border, and in recent days have actually captured back some territory again. So sort of a shifting, roving battlefield right. that seems to flick back, back and forth in terms of some of the towns there. And that looks like in the area where Russian units are trying to pin Ukrainian units. There's a, a slow-moving Ukrainian counterattack towards Izum. Izum is the main city and hub in the north, mm -hmm. which Russian units are using to base operations further south towards Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. Not really clear what's happening there. And Ukraine had a localized counteroffensive in the Kyrgyzstan Oblast. This is where Russian units have tried to maintain a big defensive buffer around Kyrgyzstan city west of the river. And they spent weeks digging in. Mm -hmm. Ukrainian forces had a counterattack. It kind of fizzled out, but now it looks like they made some progress again, and it's nice. very hard to tell what's going on with that, with that picture on the battlefield. I'd summarize it this way, the overall, the overall picture. So Ukraine has a tremendous amount of manpower, whereas the Russian military has big manpower shortages, uh, especially if you look at, at the sort of structure of the military, the way that it was much more set up for a short, sharp war and not designed for this type of conflict without conducting mobilization. And now they've sort of burned through a lot of the best people and the best equipment they have. Ukraine has manpower, but a lot of it's untrained. They've also lost a lot of their best people. And their long-term military prospects in this war are very, very heavily conditioned on sustained Western military assistance. Right. Equipment, ammunition, and the like, replacing their losses, um, you could argue, and I have, that Ukraine has a long-term military advantage, but with big asterisks next to that, right? Depending on what the West chooses to do, depending on the speed of rate at which they provide that assistance, depending on Ukraine's ability to convert the manpower and, and the will to fight that they have into combat-capable forces over time, right? So this is kind of the, the spiel I, I would give. In the interim, this is a very dangerous period for Ukraine because— they appear to be low on ammunition. They're taking very heavy losses. But I don't think the situation is as terrible as bleaker as it appears, meaning I don't believe, just from my limited perspective, the Ukrainian forces are in any place on the verge of collapse on this mm -hmm. front in Donbass. I do believe the Russian units are going to make incremental gains in the Donbass, though, at least for the coming month. And the key variable here seems to be Western unity. You say Ukraine Ukraine has a long-term advantage if the West keeps keeps providing uh, weapons and ammunition. There were kind of there were fears of that. Uh, some European countries appeared to be getting a little wobbly. Um, the French, the Germans, and the Italians in particular. Although it's significant that today, as we're recording this. Uh, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, French President Emmanuel Macron, and the Italian the Italian uh, Prime Minister all visited Kiev. Uh, they expressed support for for Ukraine's uh, candidacy in the EU and pledged uh, ple pledged pledged weapons. So that there were fears earlier in the week that that was going to kind of the Western unity was going to crack. Well, you know, pledging is very easy. Delivering is the is the harder mm -hmm. part, often for Europeans. And there are two issues there. First. Many of them have already given equipment that they have and can't give more, right? They don't have more javelins. They don't have other things they can give. And the production pipeline for these systems are now backlogged by years. So folks have to appreciate that there's not a bottomless fountain of military equipment and munitions. That's issue one. Issue two 
is that there are plenty of countries who could give more, but really haven't. They haven't shown the political will to do it, and they're giving things incrementally. And even though the United States probably has the bulk of equipment to give, there are also real issues with just transferring, right? It takes time to train units on them, especially time for them to learn how to maintain and operate the equipment to sustain it on the battlefield rather than just fire it. And to train up forces in a sort of scalable fashion, right, in a way that uh, you can you can do it faster over time. So there are a lot of growing pains with transferring Western equipment as well. Right. Yeah. And I want one thing I did want to drill into is this Russian advantage in the East. So you say the kind of the balance of forces favor favor Russia there. Is this also a question of terrain? Because the way I kind of present this to my students is the, the, the war in the north when Ukraine was doing very well. I say, imagine fighting in West Virginia. In the Donbass, imagine fighting in Kansas. It's flat. It's the it's the step, and that gives Russia an advantage due to their artillery. Am I am I right in that assessment, or what 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 are the factors that kind of make Russia have an advantage in the Donbass that they didn't have in the north? All right, Brian. You know I hate to disagree with you, but the Donbass okay. is not really like the step. Okay. So the way I would put it is Donbass is very mixed terrain, particularly where they're fighting is a mixture of urban terrain. There's a big river that forms a natural boundary. There are definitely pockets in the south and the north that are more open, allowing vehicles to maneuver. But here's the thing. There isn't really much combined arms maneuver in this war either way, right? Because what's going on is that neither side has the forces to effectively engage in maneuver warfare. That's why the Russian military has chosen attrition warfare as their approach, right? Essentially leveraging their advantage in firepower to destroy Ukrainian position, Ukrainian positions and Ukrainian units. Now look, there are opportunities to engage maneuver warfare, but there are big challenges too, right? First of all, Russian units, as you know, I've written on this with colleagues like Rob Lee, have mm. a huge deficit of infantry. And because of that, they're largely have to stick to roads because they can't operate unsupported in the open. And maneuvering in the open is very challenging in this current war because there are minefields and there are lots of drones and other systems that can spot you pretty easily. This is principally an artillery war. Right. It's come down to being an artillery war with, you know, anti-tank guided missiles slowing down formations, but artillery doing most of the work in the fighting and inflicting most of the attrition. So I don't think the terrain is necessarily that favorable to maneuver warfare in the Donbass. Um, I mean, certainly it's more favorable than fighting directly outside of Kiev. But the truth is that folks forget there were major battles in the south in the first phase of the war mm -hmm. and Russian forces were defeated somewhat decisively outside of Wisniewsk, which is north of Nikolaev in the south as well. And they were essentially blown out in the open. That was probably probably some of the most open terrain you could you could have as is uh west of Kyrgyzstan. They faced very serious uh very serious resistance from Ukraine. Uh Ukraine did very well employing artillery early on. All right. So to summarize that that conversation, the terrain from my point of view is actually very favorable to Ukraine. It still strongly mm. favors a defender in most cases. And the Russian military doesn't have a sufficient enough advantage in terms of forces like such as infantry and armor and whatnot. That's why they're progressing so slowly. It's very hard for them to make gains. Their main advantage is in fires. So attrition warfare is their approach. Ukraine's strategy, right? You could call it defense and death, but really Ukraine's strategy is exhausting Russian forces to kill this offensive over time and leveraging urban terrain to do it where they have the maximal advantage. Right. But this comes at a big price, this strategy. Right. This is the strategy they've chosen, likely because it's the best one given all the alternatives. But it's a very costly strategy to Ukrainian forces as well.
So this explains why they're continuing to fight for cities like Severodonetsk that appear on the verge of falling or Mariupol earlier, correct? Absolutely, because if you look at it, and you know, I myself early on thought, all right, that pocket is going to get closed. The logical choice for Ukraine would be to retreat to a secondary line, cede Severodonetsk to Sinchansk, as painful as it is, hope to take it back later, you know, down the line in a Ukrainian offensive, perhaps later in the summer or the fall. That is not what the Ukrainian military is doing. Although Severodonetsk is, it's not cut off, but I think all the bridges to it have been blown at this yeah. point. So it's, it's, it's off in a bad way. Um, the Ukrainian military's approach very clearly is to fight for every inch, to inflict substantial amounts of attrition on Russian forces, to exhaust them in this offensive, understanding Russian military has big manpower problems. After this offensive, they will not be able to do something like this for quite some time. Uh-huh. And what do you see happening in the South? And why is Russia so much less successful in the South than it's been in the East? Well, it depends what you mean by the South. If you're talking about the front on Zap the front uh, when we look at Zaporizhia, well, there there are very few forces. It's a fairly large, like large tract of terrain. And the forces there are pretty evenly matched. Most of the Russian attacks there have been either unsuccessful or they've been sort of a fixing action, essentially keeping units pinned, right? So there hasn't been much movement. Um, if you look further south of Zaporizhia or towards Donetsk, Russian forces have been trying to attack around Vidika Novosilka and a couple of these other areas for a while, unsuccessfully. If you mean Kherson, that's a different conversation. I mean along the Black Sea coast, basically. I mean, the early, yeah. early we thought they were going to push along the Black Sea coast and take Odessa. Well, they tried to fail. They had very few units. Basically, you know, the... The regime change operation failed within the first few days. Russian forces were then stuck trying to achieve these political objectives, but the strategy to achieve was completely unworkable because they were trying to go for everything at the same time. They had three fronts, more than six axes of advance, something the Russian military in no way could support, right, in, in what is the second largest country in Europe. And they were competing with themselves for forces. I'll give you a good example. Let's look at the South. Southern military district breaks out of Crimea, heads east to Mariupol, northeast past Melitopol to Takmak, right, towards Zaporizhia, heads west past Kherson to Nikolaev, and heads north from Kherson to Krivirik in four different directions. So this is like, from a military strategy perspective, one of the most absurd things you could have observed, right? It's as though Russian forces were, uh, not to take anything away from the Ukrainian defense, but the strategy Russian military was pursuing was, was uh, doomed to failure. That was very clear, and they were defeated in the first phase decisively. From my point of view, we're kind of looking at two distinct campaigns. The first one being for uh, to decide whether or not Ukraine would be an independent state, right? This is a campaign, the Russian effort regime, regime change. And the second campaign is really about territorial control. What are going to be the territorial boundaries, right, of, of the state? It's a bit of a reductionist approach, but that's what the fight is over now. And even though people say Russia's overall political objectives haven't changed, Kind of differ with that a little bit. I mean, Russia's objectives still are to impose its will on Ukraine, but I don't think regime change or regime change is still is the Russian objective now. So, or at least either way, it's not feasible. It's not within the means of anything the Russian military can do. Right. And I want to drill into that your your criticism of the Russian military strategy because this is something you and I have talked about off mic quite a bit. Um, and and um, about you know we all got it right that this war was coming, but what most of us got wrong is uh, how well the Russians, Russians would perform. We, we all seem to have overestimated 
how 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 strong Russia was going to be in this fight, and 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 we underestimated Ukraine. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a long conversation I've been a part of, and a very good and fair one to have. Um, I've seen a lot of folks in my field having that conversation. I think quite uh, quite earnestly and with a good deal of humility. You know, obviously, outcomes of war are one of the most difficult things to predict, and. And as I often say, and people get tired of hearing me say it, that these things are incredibly contingent, right? It depends on so many factors. That being said, there was a general consensus, so there was a range of views, that Russia would win the conventional military phase in some weeks, and that Ukraine would be fairly successful when Russia attempted an occupation, right? And that was your view, too. Right. Yeah, that was my yeah, view. Yeah. That was the view of a lot of Ukrainian colleagues. That was the view of almost everybody who was a military analyst that I knew looking we're at. talking about a guerrilla war in occupied cities is what we were thinking about at the time. Yeah, that was a general consensus. And it wasn't just a general consensus of Washington. It was a fairly broad consensus. Yeah. I mean, Ukrainians thought the same way. Um, all right. The, my view over this is that we probably underestimated Ukrainian military a bit more than we overestimated the Russian military, but we definitely overestimated Russian military in the following areas. First, we got the Russian plan wrong. I think many folks like me believe that the focus of their campaign would be the Donbass and that it would be a combined arms operation that they would plan for a serious war, that they would have a real air campaign, that they would focus on the Ukrainian military in the Donbass, try to isolate it, and that the attack on Kiev would be essentially a pinning action, right? right. Rather than this entire thing being actually, you know, as Putin said, a special operation. It's so special, only he believed that he could defeat Ukraine in five days. <laughs> yeah, he really stopped us. And um, and folks like me insufficiently appreciate how much the political would dictate this operation because it was sort of a very badly done version, uh, Soviet seizure of Czechoslovakia in 68, if we're going right. to use historical analogies, right? It was sort of like a terribly executed and thought-through version of something akin to that. So got, got the plan wrong. Initially, Russian forces did not drive in in any meaningful way relative to the way they trained and organized to fight this. They drove in administratively. They were told the Ukrainians were going to surrender, right? And they're simply just driving down the roads. Very little was prepared and organized. I won't go into the gory details of it, but suffice it to say, the entire thing was a shambles from the get-go. And Ukrainian, Ukrainian military did a pretty good job of defending, in my view. Overall, the big things I think we got wrong about the Russian military, and, and this is an important debating conversation that's going to be had uh, moving forward, is first, really we're surprised by their inability to scale operations, which you can never tell looking at a military. What militaries can do with a few brigades or battalions, they may not be able to do with a large army. And until you see it, you can never tell from exercises or small uses of force, right? You can't tell from Russian expeditionary operations in Syria what it would look like if they tried to invade Ukraine with 150,000 troops. Um, and they fell flat in their ability to scale operations, although they're clearly learning, as you can tell. To me, the, the first phase of the war isn't really telling that, that nearly that much about the Russian military. The second phase is, and it presents us a very mixed picture. What it does tell us is the Russian military has big problems in force quality. Training, leadership, right, uh, readiness, sustainment and maintenance of equipment, right? There are big challenges in their military and rot that was uncovered. Some with Brian, I will say, was clearly rot that they themselves didn't know. And nothing reveals that like an attempt to conduct a war like this, right? So they found out on day one about problems that they had, and we found out about them at the same time mm -hmm. as they did. 
right? right? Who was cheating on readiness? Who was padding their figures? Things like that. Um, was sort of referred to by uh, by a colleague, Dara Massacott, as gun decking, which isn't corruption. I'll be honest. I really dislike corruption as like a talismanic word that is used in a conversation to explain things for which they're, you know, folks can't come up with obvious explanations. A lot of the problems in the Russian military aren't due to corruption, right? There, there are clear causes for the problems in this performance and this military uh, and, and why we overestimate them. On the Ukrainian side, I can I think I can give a very short summary, at least from my limited perspective. Yeah, in the run-up to the war, it really wasn't looking like the Ukrainian military was preparing to defend, right? And so it, it was looking like they were going to get caught by the Russian operation, and that's particularly because of the stance that the Zelensky administration took, right? And to be clear, there are clear areas in the opening days of this war where the Ukrainian military was caught unprepared. And I want folks to appreciate this, that the more we look at the beginning of this war, this outcome was not overdetermined, right? The more we find out about the early days, the more we discover what a narrowly run thing this really was and how much of it hinged on certain decisions and individual decisions, right? Uh, and that we should, we should appreciate that we are fortunate to live in a timeline where we overestimated the Russian military, got their plan wrong, and grossly underestimated the Ukrainian military. Right. We could, we could have been living in a very different timeline of events. Um, the, the next part I would say is that, look, Ukraine's military is quite young. It had expanded dramatically. It had reformed. It benefited from training by NATO. Right, Brian? Yeah. But there were a lot of mixed reportings. And I was talking to a lot of folks who were training the Ukrainian military in the very run-up to the war. And they had very mixed sentiments about tactical improvements and structural problems in the Ukrainian military. And it was hard to weigh them as an analyst, in all honesty, mm. right? To, to make assumptions about how it pan out. The third point I'd make is that we dumped a lot of weapons on the Ukrainian military right in the round to the war. And it was hard to know if they would aggregate towards success. We'd done that before with other militaries. We recently had, I think, some PTSD watching what happened in Afghanistan. Mm. And it did not turn out well for all sorts of reasons, right? So... So there's room to debate whether or not all the capabilities we provide the Ukrainian military, especially last minute, were going to make the difference. And the last part I would say is we definitely underestimate how well they would fight and perform. Um, we also probably underestimate how well we could integrate to directly support them mm -hmm. meaningfully um, on, you know, with some of the things that you see, well, I put this way, some things that you've seen come out in press in recent months, the extent of sort of information the United States gave Ukraine in the run-up to the war and since then that, you know, could have some meaningful effects on Ukrainian military performance as well. So there's there's areas there. There's a lot more to dig, dig into on the Ukrainian side of the equation. And there's a lot more to dig into on the Russian side of the equation, too, which is if we look at the last month and a half, Brian, now we're seeing them employ electronic warfare. Now they're a lot better, seemingly, at combined arms. Now we're seeing much more use of uh, recon fire, integration of ISR and artillery on the Russian end. Now we're seeing heavier use of air power, all these things. You know, we, we're, we have to weigh uh, the entirety of the conflict as we're looking at it. I would say the Russian military definitely has big problems in areas that I think we didn't expect, but is now performing closer to what the mm -hmm. early assessments were. Yeah, I think that might be the fair, the most balanced right, right. Uh, take I could offer. And what this kind of illustrates is that, you know, a lot of us are looking at this on paper and the, the Russian armed forces look, you know, 
superior to to, to 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 put it mildly to the Ukrainian on Ukrainians on paper. But as you always say, Michael, spreadsheets don't fight wars. Armies fight wars, right? And um and they're in all these decisions. Zelensky's decision to remain in Kiev. Putin letting his political objectives drive the military operations. These are all things that kind of played into this and put us in, as you put it, the timeline we're living in. Absolutely. Remember, I used to rant all the time on this program that Excel spreadsheets do not fight. Forces do not march cleanly off of paper. You clearly find out that, you know, Russian capacity in terms of command and control, logistics, being able to set up effective communications for a force that size for that kind of campaign simply isn't there. You know, there are problems with readiness, there are issues across the board, and and you discover that. And that's why I say, you know, you can't you can't make these kind of straight line estimations. War is highly contingent. You know, going back to the assessments I think I think folks like me made, which is that yes, Russia appeared to have quantitative quality of superiority over Ukraine going to the war, although we didn't know the details about the Russian force that was pre-positioned, at least I didn't. I will never speak for anybody in the intelligence community, right? And looking back at it now, it turns out that they, that they invaded with a much more brittle and smaller force than we had initially assumed looking at their preparations. That makes sense. They had very little infantry. They cut the size of their units down substantially. They had a lot of issues. I, I have a long article on this with Rob Lee. But they made big trade-offs in their force structure and force design, and those had strategic implications, and still do, on Russian ability to conduct a war like this. Their military was built for a short, sharp war, assuming they would not need strategic ground offensives, occupying a lot of territory with manpower, or logistics to do these kinds of things, Brian. And guess what? One person in the Kremlin uh, either didn't know that, or maybe had tremendous assumptions about what the Russian military can do, but the operation that they selected, right, maximized Russian weaknesses and played to none of the advantages of the force that they had built. Also, it was clearly beyond the experience of anything they had done. Right. And they, so, I mean, to put it, to put it, uh, Bluntly, they, they were kind of high on their own supply. They thought the Ukrainians were going to fold like a house of cards, and they they went in with that expectation, um, which, to, again, to me is remarkable that they, they thought this was the case. Go ahead. I was like, Absolutely. I'll just say something. This is an expected outcome for a regime change operation. Most attempts at imposed regime change fail. They either fail during the initial campaign or the initial campaign is successful, and then they fail in the occupation and stabilization phase. But these things often end disastrously. And I think that on balance, one things one thing that we did have, right, was the scope of Russian operations, right? Because remember, there were, there were people that were saying there's just going to be something in the Donbass. And folks like me are saying, no, they have maximalist war aims. Like, they are in it to try to take over Ukraine and install a puppet regime. And had assumed that it was going to be a contest of wills. I think the assumption was just there was a contest of wills that Russia was going to lose in the occupation phase rather than its conventional phase now. Uh, and, and I think I think a lot of us are now going back to revisit both the assumptions on the mm. Russian military, the Ukrainian military, but soberly, not to overcorrect, right, which defense communities often do, Brian. Yeah. We overestimate the Russian military. So, you know, the next thing the defense enterprise will do is now say Russians are four feet tall and grossly underestimate. Right. And say, well... Russia doesn't pose a challenge to NATO. And I say, are you kidding? War doesn't work this way. Military power is contingent on the scenario, okay? So you cannot draw straight lines from Russian performance in Ukraine to an assumption of what a Russian invasion of Estonia would look like. I'm sorry. Mm. I'm sorry to Estonians who are listening to this. I'm not picking on you. It's just to put it this way. If I was to show you a map 
of the Russian military advance in the first couple of weeks, Brian, plus to overlay it onto the Baltics, you would be very concerned by what you've seen. Mm -hmm. Because Ukraine as a country has strategic depth, right? And it may be able to defend in a way that sacrificed 20% of territory. For many countries, that would be all of their territory. Right, right. They would be done. The Russian military would have reached their objectives. They would not have these logistical issues. They would have been attacking with a unified command on a single front, right? It would have been done. And here's the other thing. Look at the current war. The Russian military has taken an incredible amount of casualties and still in the field. So is the Ukrainian military. Both militaries are continuing to fight. This teaches a very valuable lesson. These wars become protracted, and it's remarkable, actually, the staying power you see on the battlefield. I think a lot of European militaries would have been knocked out of the fight a long time ago. Look at right. Ukrainian staying power in the war after the tremendous casualties they've taken. But look at the Russian military staying power, too, over 100 days into this conflict. Right. No, I mean, this gets back to the point you're always making, you and Andrea Kendall Tyler, is that we need to right size Russia. Um, and you, you had a piece in the in the New York Times recently uh, making that point. Well, we are where we are now. And what I wanted to do before we moved into the second half is get a sense of what has to happen for Ukraine, Ukraine to quote unquote win. What has to happen for Russia to quote unquote win? What does quote unquote winning mean? What are your scenarios in terms of like the, the best case scenario for Ukraine versus the worst case scenario? How do you, how do you see this playing out going forward? No, Brian, that's such an easy question. I'm glad you asked. I know. Yeah. <laughs> You're a smart guy. I'm not going to give you easy questions. <laughs> um, all right. So I'm always wary of making predictions about how conflict will unfold because you can't see very far into it. I think that this current phase of fighting will last in the summer, but these casualties are unsustainable for both sides. And that's likely going to lead to an operational pause. I think later on, some months down the line, Ukraine will attempt a counteroffensive, a real counteroffensive, not a localized counterattack, using military equipment that we have provided. By we, I mean the United States and Europeans. And then we will see what their potential to retake territory is. Until then, we should not attempt to prejudge the situation. Right. That conversation to me is very premature. You have to see the Ukrainian military genuinely on the offensive to have an assessment of what the art of the possible is. Okay. In terms of political end states, so um, it is clear that for Russia, Donbass represents the minimal goal. And if their forces are given substantial time to recover, let's just hypothetically say they have six to eight months at some point, and it appears like a frozen conflict, then Russia will try to take the Ukrainian South all the way to Odessa, which, mm -hmm. will, which will represent a lot of the economic viability of Ukraine. So there's a danger in a pause for Ukraine. A prolonged pause, yes, because, because if, if Russian forces are able to capture all of Donbass, or even a part of it, it will not ultimately end there. It will simply set up a continuation war down the line. And the Russian military, if given enough time, will hire more contract servicemen. They will get equipment out of storage, which they're doing now, Brian. They will replace a bunch of these losses, and they'll try to put themselves in a position for another campaign along Ukraine's southern so coast. A push along the coast towards Odessa and inland towards Zaporizhia and Dnipro, probably. Um, so r right now, that's completely unrealistic for them, and it's right. totally unrealistic for them in the near term, right? I'm just basically putting that out there right. as something that I think is the Russian political objective, which is no longer going to Kiev, but going for the Ukrainian southern coast 
and potentially using that to enact either de facto partition right. or, or settlement with Ukraine that dramatically limits Ukraine's sovereignty. Let's right. put that. Now, I think uh, Ukraine's objectives so far have been stated. I think their declaratory policy is to take back territory at least the February 24th lines. Um, that's simply an interim goal. It's very clear that Ukraine's objective is to take back all territory, ter oh, sorry, all territory, including the Donbass. I don't know about Crimea. Uh, I won't speak to what I don't know. But uh, when it comes to this proposition, it's, it's, of course, very difficult to predict how a war like this can end, especially since we don't know, as I often say, if we're near the beginning, the middle, or the end of the war. It may be safe to say that we are past the beginning and in an arduous and deeply painful middle, right? Uh, but, as I, but wars often don't end the way they begin. That's why you have to be wary of straight line analysis. And to anybody listening, if I showed you the first several weeks of World War I compared to the following years, that war looks pretty different. Just like this war looks very different after the first three, four weeks, right? Phase two looks quite different from phase one. Right. All right. Well, I don't know. Like phase three could look quite different and phase four and so on and so forth. Um, I think the one thing that is safe to say, at least from my point of view, is that this war doesn't end on February 24th lines, dividing lines. In fact, that's probably the one, the one prediction that I feel fairly confident in making. And I'll tell you what. Either the Ukrainian military, for whatever reason, is unable to retake this amount of occupied territory, which we don't know at this stage, or it is. If it is, then it de facto has the power to take back all the Donbass. Right. And politically, there's no way that it cannot. Right. There's no way that Zelensky, with the Stop, military right. capability to take back the rest of Ukraine's territory, stops at a random line in the forest on February 23rd and says, we don't need the rest of our territory back. That universe just doesn't exist in reality, right? So, so the truth is that Ukraine either is able to take back all its territory, and then Crimea is, you know, a corner case that you can debate what happens with that, or it isn't able to get to those lines, um, something in between. But the notion that we can, that there can be any kind of settlement uh, at, at those lines, from, me, from my point of view, is to me to me is illusory it's now gone right so to kind of wrap this up in a bow what i hear you saying is there's two possible scenarios here really in a broad sense one is that russia basically manages to occupy all of the donbass and then possibly push farther east in any case we're looking at a partition of ukraine or ukraine is able to push russia out of the donbass entirely um understanding that we're putting we're putting a pin in crimea and then and, and we'll talk we'll talk about that later is that is that a fair assessment of these i know it's not binary but i see kind of two two possibilities here either you have a partition of ukraine or you have all of ukrainian territory minus crimea back under Kiev's control sure we're being a bit reductionist here and we're of course including kerson and zaporizhia in, right. in that discussion um but my view is that Okay, Russian military, whatever whatever gains they're able to make in the coming month or two, right? That's probably going to be it for them for quite a while. Um, this offensive is going to be their last offensive for some time, just because of the likely exhaustion in their force. Uh, then we will see what the Ukrainian military can really do in terms of counteroffensives. Not immediately. That's not how that's not how things work. The Ukrainian force is also badly exhausted, so it'll take time, months for them to recover. And then the, the likely dividing line is going to be 
uh, either those two scenarios or something in between, Brian, right? Mm -hmm. Like the battle line is where it is. And this becomes a protracted war the last years. I'm sorry to, yeah. to make this dour assertion, but, um, you know, so strong, Europe has a strong tradition of wars that start off with folks thinking they're going to end early and then becoming protracted for many right. years. And this is already, what, like an eight-year-long run running war? Right. If you go back to 2014, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, right? Even if you don't, 100-plus days for a conventional war is actually one of the longer-running interstate wars. This already, not to be nerdy, this already, in uh, uh, by any standard, uh, a long-running war. Because mm -hmm. more than 80% of interstate wars are shorter than this. So this is already in the distinct minority of interstate conflicts. Right, You're just right. starting on February 24th. Uh, yeah, now I'm expecting this to go years, actually, quite quite frankly. There's another thing I wanted to, before we move into the second half, I, I wanted to talk to you about something we've been talking off mic about. Um, very early in this conflict, I, I sent out a tweet that said, either we are witnessing the beginning of the end of Ukraine, or be, you're witnessing the beginning of the end of Putin. Both will not survive this conflict. I was surprised to find that you uh, largely concur in that assessment, and you seem to think we're seeing the beginning of the end of Putin as a result of this conflict. I, I wanted to kind of flesh that out a little bit with you. Sure. I mean, okay, the beginning of the end of Putin, of course, not a testable prediction, right? That's kind of right. easy to say. And then whatever happens to Putin or the regime, eventually say that you were right in a in a non-falsifiable prediction. Right. But, yeah, so I mean, so, we're not just to be clear. We're not saying this is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, or even next year. Right, but, right. So here's my view on it. First, predicting regime change, uh, obviously, in a personalist authoritarian system, is a fool's errand. You're often better off just taking your money and going to Vegas because the odds are better <laughs> there than in, than in getting that right uh, historically. That said, I'm probably in the minority of people who think that this regime, at least with Putin in charge of it, is going to end sooner rather than later. And, and, I, and I will not have my feet held to the fire to make a testable prediction because of the first thing I just said, right? That that might be easier to gamble in Vegas than to get that right. Um, and, I, and I have reasons for that. I'll just say that I guess my intuition tells me that I don't think it's going to last uh, nearly that long. There's the folks who say that Putin's going to be there for many years to come. I'm skeptical of it. However, I'm also in the, probably in the camp of people who believe that if he's going to be replaced, he will be replaced by another authoritarian yes. leader, most likely. Uh, and leaders matter. They have ideas. Their ideas matter. So there's, there's a difference to changing leaders. But that ultimately, a lot of big aspects of Russian foreign policy may not change, right? That a lot of the things that um, that uh, make Russia a challenge to deal with or Russian interests may not be dramatically redefined. Although it obviously depends on what happens. Right now, Putin is also, and we've talked about this, has put himself in this position where he's pleasing nobody right now. Um, he's kind of caught in, he's, he's, he's occupying a, a, a shrinking center in terms of limiting the war aims here, right? Do, do, do you see that? I mean, it's in a perverse way, it's almost similar to Gorbachev, the position he put himself in where he was in a position where nobody, nobody was happy with what he was doing. Yeah, this is a bit simplistic, but I think Putin's increasingly occupying a middle with a population of one, which is largely him, because now it looks like they're 
two main categories of folks within the Russian elite. Uh, one are people who think that this is a terrible blunder, that uh, he's essentially taking Russia back, not just to Soviet times. They'd be lucky if they're taking it back to Soviet times. It's something between Iran and North Korea in terms of what it's going to look like. And they have very little interest in living in that kind of Russia, right? They see this as a colossal uh, disaster in terms of lives they built, their businesses, uh, and uh, the kind of life they want to lead in a relatively modern country, right? And then there's a whole separate set of elites who think that this is a disaster because um, they they were fight, they were interested in this war as an imperial restoration war, right? To go to Kiev to recreate some kind of union state between Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And they're not in this war um, for a bunch of towns in the Donbass whose names they don't even know, right? So this is not deliverable for them. They believe that to them, this represents a defeat, right? And this defeat will will uh, dramatically um, circumscribe Russia's power, influence as a great power in international politics, and certainly European security. So they also see this as a disaster for different reasons, and they think that Putin should enact mobilization, that he should declare a state of war, and that this has to end with some kind of Russian assault on Kiev, right? And those are. You know, you know folks like that, like Patrushev and others. So there's that opinion to the right of him. And Putin appears to be in the middle, kind of like he was in 2014, Brian, doing what Putin yeah. does best, which is procrastinating. And, and essentially opting for piecemeal solutions where they're just kicking the can down the road. They're not, they haven't lost. They, they don't look positioned to win, right? They're sort of in the middle in a deteriorating situation. Except this time around, this is not 2014, right? Right. They have the military capability doesn't have the options to do with what Russia did in 2014, 2015. Okay, this is a very simplistic perspective. And if anybody's listening to saying, um, you know, we're interested in your opinion as a military analyst rather than a political analyst, that's perfectly fine. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. you're, a pretty yeah. political, you're, you're a pretty good political analyst as well. And no, I, I, I do kind of see it that way. I see Putin kind of losing the, the initiative here. Um, and again, capturing the Donbass isn't going to cut it um, for, for the people that want imperial restoration. Um, they, want, they want a victory parade on the Kushatik is what they want. And the others want to go back to the pre-February 24th world where they can live in this kleptocratic state where they had their villas in France um, and, and, and and so on. So I think that he has put himself in a difficult spot here. Yeah, I mean, I think those people wouldn't mind just getting on one plane they can fly across Europe. Like, let's be honest. They, pro they appreciate what's going to happen to the Russian economy. The worst for Russia is all yet to come. It's going to be felt later on in August, yep. September as the impact of export control and some of these other things hit, right? You've seen Russian imports implode. An economy, an economy lives off of imports, right? Russia's right. not an autarkic country. It depends on a tremendous amount of imports and maybe not the basics, right? Like grain such as China, but nonetheless, it does depend on them. And so a lot of these things are going to increasingly shape Russian lives in the coming months. And then there is the very real possibility that Putin gets indicted for war crimes. That is a very real possibility. I had several former war crimes prosecutors on the show about a month ago who said this is coming. We don't know how much that could change the equation. 
In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion, broaden the aperture, and speculate a bit about what European security might look like when this war is over. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennedy Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Никто не слушал I also tell them that we are likely entering a world that looks a lot more like the Cold War environment that I grew up in rather than the optimistic globalized world that they grew up in. But within these parameters, there are a lot of different scenarios for what secure European security might look like. There are a lot of contingencies. How does the war end? What's Vladimir Putin's political fate going to be? Does Western unity hold? Uh, Michael, you're not just a military analyst. Uh, you're a pretty astute scholar of international relations. What are some of the scenarios you see for a possible post-war world in European security? It's a great question, not a very easy one to answer. So I think that's the subject being debated right now. Obviously, it'd be much easier to discuss once you see the outlines of how right. the war ends, and we're pretty far from it. A war like this could escalate, as you very well know and can appreciate, yep. that this could become a wider war over time. Who knows? Um, the longer wars go on, the like the greater the likelihood that they might escalate. Right now, it looks like a war that's sort of shrunk down to the Donbass and Ukraine south. But there's a long-running debate now of what to do about the Russian blockade, about right. grain exports from the Black Sea. Right? There's always some folks who argue for an intervention or uh, something under UN auspices or a coalition of states, what have you. Right? So you can see how over time this war could widen to include other parties. Writ large, I think the war poses some pretty significant uh, challenges for international security. Right? First, uh, the United States is still on a secular trend in a strategy and outlook on the world where China is the principal strategic competitor from the right. perspective of the U.S. political establishment. And it's going to continue focusing in China. And so the likelihood that there's going to be a dramatic shift of U.S. military power and all these things to Europe, to me, is actually quite debatable. Mm -hmm. Second, the economic ability to realize this and to realize ramped-up defense spending in Europe right now, beyond, despite the wonderful pledges people have made, Brian, is also a bit debatable, too, because mm -hmm. you understand we're likely heading into a global economic recession. Inflation is incredibly high. People are going to see their budgets consumed. And so there are big outstanding questions about that. The third one on 
uh, raise defense spending by countries like Germany and Europe, European strategic autonomy. There, I'm probably a perpetual skeptic, and I firmly hold to the belief that there are two NATOs. There's a NATO with the United States in a leading role as the integrating military, right? And then there's NATO without the United States, which is a very, very different alliance in terms of its military capability, right? And as you can see, the ability to scale military operations really matters. And I am deeply skeptical that without the United States, European militaries on paper add up to a single successful large-scale military operation that can be executed. Just being honest, that's my view of it. Uh, so this war obviously is not just about Ukraine, right? This is also a fight that Russia's picking to relitigate the post-Cold War settlement, right. right? And it's about what is Russia's role in Europe? How is European security determined and by whom? And whose principles are going to govern the way in which determine European security? And I think we've had these conversations before. I know you're deeply familiar with the Russian argument because I think we've heard it right. for many, many years now, so much that we could all do their talking points for them, right? right. Um, we know them quite well. And you can, you can see very well that if, if for whatever reason the Russian operation was successful, right, we'd have a very different narrative about European security right now. Right. We probably would. A, a fairly... Um, a fairly uh, dark one, and would probably be a very rapid change in how we perceive European security. So this contest is very much not just about Ukraine. It is about is a much bigger picture contest, and it's also a, a contest about the extent to which the United States can continue to advance its vision of the international order. I won't go down the you know international order rabbit hole, but the question is: Is that order going to be one? that characteristically reflects our uh, preferences or not. Uh, and obviously this conflict also has big implications for the contest with China. Yeah, what happens yeah China's watching, yeah. I mean, but I mean, in the event that we, the, the scenarios you painted for how the war could end, and I'm simplifying them grossly, but either a partitioned Ukraine or a fully, fully free Ukraine. Right. In either of those two scenarios, I, 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 I find it hard to imagine a world in which we don't have an increased U.S. force posture in Europe. We do, but um, Brian, we do, but it may not be that tremendously significant. It all depends. And you have to keep in mind a few things. First, from my point of view, Russia's going to be back militarily, probably a lot sooner than folks think. This is not going to set back the Russian military by generations or a generation. Depending on how the war goes on, it will set them back years for sure. But they actually will be able to reacquire a lot of the military equipment they've lost. They will be, be able to reorganize and reform. One thing that Russia does pretty well relative to others is resurrect itself and glue mm -hmm. itself back together. And it does this usually a lot faster than people expect. And normally does this right around the period when everybody writes Russia off. So I'm already bracing myself for the coming years where Russia's written off as a military power during which they rebuild, and then at some point we'll get to another period, Brian. Yeah. People, people will accuse Russian military analysts and say, how come you didn't warn us that Russian, Russia was going to be back as a, as a serious problem conventionally in Europe? Because I've lived through this before, so I know I can only live through these cycles, right? Right, right. Um, well, let's get, yeah, go ahead. So, so basically what I was going to say is that European security is very unsettled. And uh, 
to me, one of the big challenges there, and and this is one significant component of it, is that we are still witnessing the collapse of the Soviet Union. These are principally wars of Soviet succession, from my point of view. Mm -hmm. I think Sergei Bohe was right years ago when he wrote, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, is a process, it is not an event. It is recorded as a singular event in Western memory, but that is not how empires dissolve historically. Right. They can't be broken up by one in one day by three guys. That's just not how it right. works. And that this, along with many of the other conflicts we've seen, are wars of Soviet succession. And that's a defining feature of not just security in the former Soviet space, but in, uh, uh, in Europe as well. And this goes far beyond, you know, the sort of conversations and proxy fight over NATO enlargement and who said what to whom and these other aspects. This is a fundamental question that European security is very unsettled. Russia's principally a revisionist state. It will at some point regain the military power to pursue revisionism in some years. And this is an enduring challenge. As you know, for a long time, the United States has wanted to part the relationship with Russia and European security so it can focus on China. And right. I've, I've, I've often made the admonishment that that's the world simply not going to conform to those strategic preferences. Right. But, but you seem relatively certain that we're not going to be, although we may be moving towards a divided Europe scenario, we're not going to be moving towards a situation where the U.S. has you know 450,000 troops in Europe defending the front lines as it did during the Cold War. No, we're not. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we're, I mean, I don't think we're going to see a divided Europe per se, if anything, with the addition of Sweden and Finland to NATO. Um, we're going to see likely a Europe that's much more consolidated, although that could be very optimistic. On my well, I mean, a divided, broader Europe, I guess, is what I, what I was referring to, because there's contingencies here. If Russia's unsuccessful in Ukraine, I actually think Belarus could fall, right? I think the Lukashenko regime could fall. Um, Russia's weakness would be exposed. Uh, Putin is Lukashenko's only only uh, uh, patron right now. And I think there is a strong possibility that if Russia fails in Ukraine, that Belarus could be free as well. The corollary to that is that if Russia is successful in Ukraine, I, I basically think that the that, that, that Belarusian sovereignty, uh, it's hanging by a thread at the moment, is over. Um, so I think that, that what that part of the map is going to look like depends a lot on how this ends. Uh, go ahead. Just make two brief comments. First is, you know, the challenge is that a strategic defeat for Russia and Ukraine is not a victory for Ukraine or for the West, right? You can very easily see this war end in a way such that this is a overall a defeat for Russia. But Ukraine's left in a position where it's lost territory, it's lost population, it's had tremendous uh, degradation to its GDP and economic viability, and it's under an economic blockade. That is not what victory looks like, and nobody in Europe is going to look at that situation, Brian, and say that this is this is victory, right? Not by any sense of the word, nor by uh, any sense in how Ukraine's own political leadership defines what victory is. So you can end up in a situation in Europe where despite all the support and all the aid, Russia has in many ways been, has lost, or at base has achieved um, minimal objectives at tremendous cost. But uh, the West hasn't won, and that's uh, that's a scenario that's quite possible. 
That's, what that's I kind of like the post twenty fourteen scenario, only on a much larger scale, is what that what, what that looks like to me. Uh, we're bumping up against the end here, Michael. But there's one thing I did want to touch on, and that is. What lessons have we learned? We're moving into a new kind of Cold War style situation. What are the lessons we learned from the first Cold War? And what are the lessons we learned from the post-Cold War that we that could, could that, that, that we could you know employ now? Well, and first I think is that ultimately deterrence works. Mm -hmm. the conversation on deterrence, from my point of view, should always focus on conventional first and nuclear. And I know you've grown tired of me often chiding folks overly focused on hybrid war and all that other stuff and me focusing on conventional military capabilities and saying that, you know, things that really change politics, the things that change international orders are wars. Right. Big conventional wars and um, and and sort of. All right. I'm a military analyst. I'm a hammer and I like to talk about nails. I get it. But but be that what it may. I think we really have to continue the conversation on conventional nuclear deterrence. We're in a place right now where uh, both conventional military capability, uh, bolstering the defensive capabilities of European states, and thinking about nuclear coercion and nuclear threats really matters. Mm -hmm. It's actually going to matter even more because Russia is going to uh, be increasingly dependent on nuclear weapons for some years after this war. We're uh, in a conversation where Thinking hard about the security and order in Europe is important, whether we want of it. You know, it's great that Finland and Sweden have applied. I think they're going to add a lot of capability and all that, Brian, right? Yeah. But but this was not like a, a, a real thought-through strategy in many ways, right? So right, the day after that, folks like me are going to probably end up looking at a map of Russia and Finland, which is a very long border, mm -hmm. and start thinking about what does it look like, what does it look like for NATO to defend Finland, right? So there's a lot of day-after effects. Right. Um, uh, if, if you look at the future European security. Oh, the Finns are no slouches militarily, though. Uh, they're not. But, you know, once they're in NATO, we have security commitments to them. Right. So <laughs> just put it that way. As, as you know, I'm very close friends with, with a lot of colleagues in Finland. But once they're in NATO, that's, um, uh, that's, that's a contingency. Right? That's a contingency that that's a contingency you have to think about moving forward. Um, and. You know, it's a much longer conversation on what are the big lessons from these Cold Wars. Or the post-Cold War. Um, I mean, I, I, I think we're, you know, there's a, there's a threat that you alluded to that we might underestimate Russia again. Yeah, the lesson from the post-Cold War period is we have to abandon these cycles of finding ways to not deal with Russia or the Russia problem set. The second lesson is not to be overly euphoric. If this results as a strategic defeat for Russia and Ukraine, Brian, it's very important that people don't walk away and sprain their hands, patting themselves on the back, which can happen. Um, the next one is not to get into a place where people say, well, Russia can't pose a serious threat to NATO for some years after this, so we don't have to worry about it moving forward, and then get surprised down the line again. Uh, there is no real room for the United States to leave Europe is a principal agent shaping European security outcomes. That's very clear. If you didn't believe this before, Brian, before this sure. war, if you believed in European strategic autonomy or the role of the EU and all these things, I hope this has convinced you otherwise, right? <laughs> so, so you're telling me Macron's wrong? I mean, I'm not, listen, I have nothing against Macron <laughs> the French. I'm just, 
<laughs> I'm just looking at the situation as it is, and uh, this is my perspective. I'm not um, I'm not that seriously involved in the in debate regarding European politics or their role. I just look at it as the United States has no good prospects for uh, trying to downsize its role in managing European security. I know many folks wanted to, and many people want to believe that NATO without the United States Europeans can manage the Russia problem set because of how much weaker Russia ends up looking militarily. But I'm gonna tell you that is really learning the wrong lessons from this war, both objectively and also what they mean for European security moving forward. Um, and the last part I would say is, you know, Brian, uh, I would say that the United States and, and Europeans after the end of the Cold War found good solutions for how to handle European security and the vacuum that was left there, both managing the desires of Central European states, managing the departure of the Soviet Union as an actor shaping European security and trying to find answers to that problem set. What I don't think we ever came up with were good solutions to deal with the wars of Soviet succession and the instability in the post-Soviet space, right? I'm gonna put the Baltics aside as a corner case here, right? Now, we never even recognized the Baltics as a part of the Soviet Union anyway. But, um, but putting that aside, I think we never came up with good solutions, either for Eastern Europe or for other parts of the former Soviet space. They were always kind of ad hoc they were always incremental, and some were the worst of both worlds, like the Bucharest Summit Declaration, which you know right. I always tag on. It's like the worst of both worlds solution that solved nothing. Right. Right. So it was, it was these kind of answers for what to do with post-Soviet space. And I think that that's another lesson, too, that we actually won't be able to ignore it. We won't be able to ignore it. We're going to have to think of solutions uh, for the space. And, we're gonna, and, and uh, this is a conversation that takes us well beyond the debates about NATO enlargement and all that. Right. Right. Yeah, no, this is something I'm giving a lot of thought to right now is what you know, what does this look like when this is over and what can we learn from the mistakes we made most most mostly post 1991. This is something I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking a lot about right now. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, yeah and I think the, the right answer is acknowledge that some things were mistakes. Acknowledge that they're easier to see in hindsight and not have not have unhelpful debates of who got necessarily what wrong, Brian, and talk about from the perspective of moving forward. OK. We are where we are now. As long as we understand that history, what can we do differently moving forward? And down the line, if there are changes, there are real changes in Russia, meaningful changes, how do we do better at securing the peace? Right? right. In that in that optimistic, fantastic future that I just described, how would we do much better in helping to secure yeah. the peace? Yeah, if that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, a lot of this is contingent on what happens in Russia domestically, which we could do an entire podcast on. But unfortunately, I'm looking at the clock and we're bumping up against the end. And if I don't wrap it up, our producers are going to probably issue sectoral sanctions against me. So I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, director 
director of the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael, thanks as always for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Brian. Always good to be back with you. Always good to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.